John chapter 7. This is exciting stuff. John chapter 7. Now remember where we are. Jesus has gone to the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. That's when all the males in Israel were required to come, and entire families, entire towns would come to Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire. There's million, over a million people there. And they would erect these little, little huts out of sticks and live in them for seven days to remind them of, of their wilderness journeys and how God took care of them. In fact, those who lived in Jerusalem would build these huts up on their roof and live under them. The kids thought it was great. It was a great time for the kids. It was a great, very happy, joyous celebration. And now we read here in John 7, go down to verse uh, 27, 37, I'm sorry. It says, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone's thirsty, then come to me and drink. Notice that phrase, on the last day. I said last time, that's probably the seventh day, doing some more research, it's actually probably the eighth day. This was a seven-day festival with an eighth-day tacked on of special rejoicing and feasting. So for, for seven days during this feast, the priests, the high priests and all the rest of the priests would get these golden pitchers, golden jars. They would march out to, to the Pool of Siloam, fill these jars with water, then march back in through the water gate into the city. And for seven days, they would pour this water out before the altar as an offering to the Lord. As a thank you for the, for the way God gave them water in the wilderness, for the way God gives them water for the harvest, for the way God takes care of their nation. And while they're doing that, on, on the seventh day, uh, they would go out and do the same thing. But on the way back, I have it there in a sheet. As they're coming in the gate, they would blow the ram's horn three times, big celebration. The, the, the priest would shout out Isaiah 12, verse 3, which says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. They would shout that out. Then as they're doing that, the men, or not all the people watching this, remember there's thousands and thousands crowded around here, would sing Psalms 113 to Psalms 118. I needn't turn there, but I did pull some of that up. Just a few verses I want to show you from those. Psalm 113 to 118 are called the, the joy psalms, the rejoicing psalms. Just Let me give you a few verses out of those. Psalm 114, 7 and 8 says, Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. Psalm 115, 1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. These psalms are full of, you are good, you are kind, you are faithful, your loving kindness lasts forever, you are merciful, you are great. Psalm 116.12 what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Psalm 117, one verse, two verses. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us and the faithfulness of the Lord. You get the idea. They're, they're singing these psalms of thanksgiving, of how good you are, how kind you are, how merciful you are, how, how well you take care of us. You're God of our salvation. You're our rock. You're our deliverer. As the priests are marching in, and they're also having their hands, the men do, in their hand they have a, a, a willow branch, a myrtle branch, and a palm branch, and they're shaking these, pointing out God's giving water to the ground. And on, on their left hand they have a piece of fruit, symbolizing God's gracious provision of all these things. Now think about that. And what, what this means is, that this, this, this ceremony is meant to remind them First of all, of God's provision of water. God, remember, remember, in a desert climate, water is precious. You miss one harvest and people die. Water is everything. Fresh water, clean water. And they're thanking God. They're remembering how God led them through the wilderness, gave them water from the rock. Of course, Paul says that rock was Christ. And also just, just thanking him for his goodness, for his provision. But also more than that, they're reminding themselves of the age of Messiah to come. There's a great celebration in all this. They're reminding themselves, and so much that we're going to spend a little bit, a bit of time today in the Old Testament. That's why you have four pages there. So much of the promises of God in the Old Testament, speaking about the days of the Messiah, the coming glory of Israel and the, the glory of the world, so much of that was spoken of in terms of water, in terms of blessing of water, in terms of pouring out God's Spirit. And the Jews... 
before Christ came in, in, in these days, they saw the future glory of Messiah. The day they believed when, when the Spirit would poured out on all flesh, starting in Jerusalem. And so much of that was based on water. And this ceremony is, is picturing that. So let's just re- look at some verses. Spend some time in our Old Testament. The, the second page on your handout there. It says, Salvation's poured out like water. God pictures his blessings to come in water terms. And again, that means a lot to a desert people. We don't think like that. We take water for granted. You turn on a tap, there it is. They couldn't do that. Water was, water was life to them. And God told them that when I finally bring about the age of Messiah, the age of God's blessing on the earth, it'll be like water in the desert. Notice some of these verses. Psalm, Proverbs one twenty three. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit. How many times did Joseph Hesman say the spirit will be poured out? That's water terms. Isaiah 12.3, with joy you will draw from the wells of salvation. Picturing God's salvation as though it were a cool well in the middle of the desert. Isaiah 35, 6 and 7, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, burning sand shall become a pool, thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals, they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. There's the idea of healing and God's blessed healing, again, a picture of water in the desert. Isaiah 41, 18, I will open rivers on the bare heights, Fountains in the midst of the valleys. I'll make the wilderness a pool of water. Dry land, springs of water. Isaiah 44.3. I will pour water on the thirsty land. Streams on the dry ground. Notice that the, the, the parallel. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. This water is picturing the day when God pours out his spirit on people. And people are blessed. And salvation comes because of this pouring out. This is said many times. Look at Isaiah 43.19. Behold. I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, and all of to give drink to my chosen people. All of that's in the context of salvation, God's spirit. Isaiah 49.10. They shall not hunger or thirst, either scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity in them will lead them, and by springs of water will God. That's that's echoes of David in Psalm uh, 22, uh, not Psalm, Psalm 23. Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come by and eat. And if you read that following, which we will in a minute here, he's talking about salvation. Isaiah 55, 11. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. Make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water. See all these references? God's blessing is tied into the image of water. Some more. The backside of that page. Jeremiah 2.13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, notice, the fountain of living waters. God says, I am the fountain of living. Remember Jesus said to the woman with the well, living waters. Here he says it again. Ezekiel 36, 25-27, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove my heart, the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. In other words, sprinkling clean water is, is the same thing as I'm putting my spirit within you. In Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel sees this vision of this super mega temple, this ultra temple. It's huge. It's enormous. And what he sees, part of it is he sees water coming out from under the altar, flowing out the steps, out through the front door. I have it broken down there in your sheet, condensed. So then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple. It was ankle deep, and it was out farther, and it's knee deep, it was out farther, it's waist deep. In other words, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper and wider, the farther it goes. A river that I could not pass through, it also says, on the bank of the river, very many trees on the one side, on the other. That should sound familiar to you. Wherever the river goes, everything will live where the river goes. And he sees this vision of the temple. And there's this living water flowing out under the altar, out through the front gates. And the farther it goes, the wider it gets, the deeper it gets. And it has these trees on both sides of the river, like Revelation 22. And every place it goes, it says, everything lives. It brings life wherever this river goes. This beautiful picture of this living water. A few more, Joel 2.28. It shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Get that phrase, pour out. There again, the spirit like water is being poured out. Joel 3.18. 
In that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, the hills shall flow with milk, all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of, Je- of the Lord. Zechariah 12.10 I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me in whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as, as one mourns for an only child. And we, that's speaking of the day when Israel recognizes her Messiah and weeps over what they did to him. Zechariah 13.1, speaking of the same time, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Again, there's a picture of water, of salvation, Israel coming to salvation. Zechariah 14.8, on that day, this is a day when it says his feet shall stand in the Mount of Olives. This is a day when Jesus returns. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem Half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer. As it, I, could, I could give you another page or two of these. All throughout the Old Testament, they look forward to a day when Messiah reigns, when the Spirit is poured out on the entire planet, when God is going to bless everyone through Jerusalem, through Israel. And it's all pictured in this idea of flowing, clean, living water. Water of the Spirit, water in your heart, water in the desert, just water, water, water. God is the fountain of living water. He's going to pour out his water. That's what this festival is picturing. That's what they're hearing preached. And now it's the last day of the feast. They have all of this floating in their heads. This water festival, the days of Messiah, the, the water of the Spirit, the water being poured out. Israel's future hopes were based on God's promises that during this future age of Messiah... He would pour out his blessings of his spirit on the whole earth. They were steeped in this kind of theology. Now picture this. It's the last day of the feast, the eighth day. The the ceremony is just finished, and thousands and thousands of people are starting to leave. And what does Jesus do? Verse 37. He stands up publicly, probably on something where he can get above the crowd, and shouts. He shouts out. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You see what he's doing there? That's the context of this. Think of it. Picture that. Uh, already, this, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink. It just, they just saw this seven-day water ceremony. They've been reminded of all these great, precious promises of drinking from the wells of salvation that God will provide. And here's Jesus. If any of you are thirsty, come to me and drink. That's beautiful if you think about it. Now remember, they had argued with him for days. Some of this crowd did. But now, it's the last day, and one last time, as they're leaving, as they're passing by, he's shouting out to this crowd. Again, the, the verbs are in a continuous tense. He's shouting continuously. If anyone out there is thirsty, come to me. Drink of me. Believe in me, as we see the very next verse says. That with this water festival fresh in their minds, they couldn't miss what Jesus here is claiming. Now, he already had told this crowd, as we saw last week, the last time, many in this crowd are already wondering, is this the Messiah? We saw that. In 26, they're saying, can this be the Messiah in 31? In fact, look at verse 40. We didn't get there yet. Look at 7, verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. And others were saying, this is the Christ. The crowd start, some of this crowd starting to believe in him. They're starting to figure this out. They've heard him preach now for several days. They saw him confronted by the Pharisees and the things he said. He claimed, remember he shouted out just before this, a couple days before, he shouted out to the crowd, you know where I've come from my father. Everything I say and do is from my father. <sighs> so now here he is on the last day of the feast when they have all this imagery fresh in their heads. You want a drink of spiritual water? Come to me. Come to me and drink. That's a beautiful picture. As they're leaving, one last time, he's calling out to these people. He, in fact, those says there, he cried out. He's literally in Greek, he's shouting. Now, shouting always involves passion. He's, he's excited. Matthew Henry says, love to souls makes preachers lively. He's shouting at them. Hey, come to me. Come to me. He's calling out to this crowd, this great gospel offer. He already claimed he was sent from God. He was sent here to deliver God's truth. Now he's proclaiming, I am the fulfillment of all those Old Testament messianic promises. The water that God's going to pour out for you, 
I'm the source of that. Come to me and get that water is what he's saying. Now let's take this apart. We're going to spend one more week here next time, Lord willing. But notice, again, verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, notice that first word, if, if anyone is thirsty, if. Now many had heard him preach in the last couple of days. Many are already wondering, is he the Messiah? And I'm sure as he was preaching, we, don't, we only get small bits of what he said. I'm sure he probably preached for hours. Most of the, the sermons and messages you read in the New Testament are just bits. They couldn't give you the whole thing. They heard him teaching. In fact, it says in here in verse 7, he was teaching in the temple. What was he teaching? These things. They've heard him teach. And so he cries out now, if. Now you know full well, the self-righteous Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, and others, and others in this crowd, a lot of Jews did not think they needed salvation. We're children of Abraham. We keep the law. We don't need to be saved. We don't need a redeemer. But but there were some in this crowd, you have to know this, as Jesus is preaching, the Holy Spirit is working in them. And they're wondering, can this be Messiah? And some of them, as has happened to you and me and all of us who get saved, somewhere along the line, the Holy Spirit does this wonderful work of convicting them. You start realizing, I need salvation. I need a Savior. I'm not right with God. As we saw back in John 6, 45, Jesus said, all those who are taught of my Father, what? Will come to me. As he's preaching, and you know when Jesus preaches, the Spirit is working. And now some in this crowd reject him, some don't. In fact, it says there earlier, many believed in him. So as he's shouting out to this crowd, there's some who are responding to this. If, he says, if you understand your need, you need to recognize your need. Jesus is calling out to those whom the Spirit is working. They feel that starvation of their soul. They feel the thirstiness of it. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What? They shall be satisfied. That's every Christian testimony. Think about it. Now, it all comes different ways to us, but you start realizing I'm lacking something. I'm missing something. Something's not right in my soul. You get that hunger. You get that need. You get that, I need more than what this world can offer me. Luke, 15, Luke, 3, or sorry, Luke 5, 31, when the Pharisees, when Jesus was having that, that banquet at that Matthew's house, and the Pharisees said, how can you dare eat with sinners like that? Remember what he said? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees who thought they were righteous, Jesus said, I'm not here for you. I'm here for those who recognize they're sick. Because I'm the great physician, I'm the doctor. And Jesus here is saying, shouting to these thousands as they're slowly passing by, if any among you are thirsty, come to me. Let's take that, that's some neat stuff. Do you remember that thirst for salvation? Whatever drove you to Christ? That hunger, that thirst? Every lost soul is craving for something far more than this world can give them. That's the whole story of our lo- of the world, isn't it? All the lost people out there, they're craving, they're searching for something. They have this emptiness inside. That if someone says, like a God-shaped hole, we're created for God. And they're searching for Him. They're searching for God. They're searching for something to fill that hole. But nothing in this life can do that. Nothing. Spiritually, they're starving. Spiritually, they're dying of thirst. They're part. Picture being out in the desert without water, that feeling. That's the feeling they have in their soul. That's why alcohol is so popular and drugs and, and, and illicit sex and all that. That's why the internet is so addicting and why kids can't put down their cell phones. They're craving for something to give them worth, to give them something more than they have. They know they're missing something. As you know, all this world's pleasures are hollow. It's a pathetic circus. They promise so much. Buy this, wear this, do this, go there, go here. And it's all an illusion. It, doesn't, it never gives you what it promises. Everything in this world is temporary. You buy something and you're thrilled with it. And a week later you're bored with it. That's the nature of things. That's the nature of this world. It's, just, it's unsatisfying. You think, boy, if I only had that, if I only married that person, if I only had this, if I only had more money, then I'd be satisfied. 
That's, that's a lying illusion. It's never true. Because when you get there, if you get there, you find out it's not satisfying. Someone asked one of the multi-billionaires, how much money is enough? He said, just more, just a little more. You think, you think these multi-billionaires around the world today are really happy? You think these Hollywood actors who make millions and these, these, these you think they're happy? They have that inner peace and joy? Of course they don't. That's why they're so crazy in the way they live. They search uselessly all through their life trying to find something to satisfy their deepest need. You guys are there. I remember I was there. That's what led me to Christ. When I was 14, I saw this world as so empty and meaningless. And I thought, I looked at my older brothers working in the factory and they had their houses. I remember thinking, is that all there is? Is that it? I, I just wanted more. Just, this, this can't be enough. This can't be enough. This can't be all there is. The lost will destroy themselves through drinking, through drugs, through sleeping around, because they think that's where the answer is. And they end up destroying themselves. It's sinful and it's sad, isn't it? It really is sad. Each thrill wears out. You need a bigger thrill. Everything leaves them empty and hollow. And you, you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. I certainly do. I remember those days. No rest for the weary. No rest for the wicked. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And that's true. That's, that's profound theology. We're created by God for God. Our highest good, our highest satisfaction will only be found in him. And we'll never be satisfied. We'll never find real peace, real meaning in life until you, you're related back to your God who made you. And that's why the world runs around crazy. Nothing else will fill that hole. Nothing less will fill that hole. Nothing. C.S. Lewis said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. That's very wise. Everybody has that restlessness. It just doesn't feel right. I'm just not satisfied. We run to this. We run to this. We run to this. We think that's going to make my life better. And we get in it and it doesn't. You seem to realize you're made for better things than this. We're made for God. Some verses. Psalm 63, 1. Oh God... You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Notice this. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Picture that. David's crying out, Lord, it's like I'm walking through a spiritual desert. I'm starving. I'm, I'm, my thirst is going to kill me. Lord, I thirst for you. Nothing here can satisfy me is what he's saying. Only you can satisfy my deep hunger, my spiritual thirst. And he says, Lord, I'm panting after you. That's the cry of, a, of, a, of a, every heart. Psalm, Isaiah 55, 2 on your sheet. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfied? God is saying, why do you waste your time, all your money and all your energy on things that will never satisfy your soul? Why? Your careers, your cars, your houses, your whatever, your, your entertainment, your joys, your this, your that. You spend all your time on earthly things thinking somehow that's going to satisfy my soul. And God says, I'll never satisfy your soul. It can't. You're made for bigger things than that. And God's saying, no, why do you do that? This whole earth is full of frustration. Ecclesiastes, the whole book of Ecclesiastes is written from this premise. How frustrating and empty this world is without God. Some verses in your sheet, and you know this. He starts out his book, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Do you realize that? This world, this pathetic circus of this world is all vain. The word vain means empty. There's nothing there. You can work all your life to make money and have that big house, only to find out I'm still empty inside. You can set your worldly goals and your worldly pursuits and go after them with all your heart only to find out when you get there. It's, nothing, it's empty. I'm still unhappy. I still lack something. In fact, chapter 2, Solomon does that. Solomon has all the best houses, the best lands, the best women, the best drink, the best money. He says it was all vanity. It does not satisfy your soul. Read on. I've seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Picture what he's saying there. Like trying to shovel smoke with a pitchfork in the wind. You try it, and you try it, and you run after it, and when you get there, it, it disappears. When you think you finally have what's going to make you happy, and when you get it, it doesn't. 
It thrills you today, it bores you tomorrow. It's all vanity, Solomon says. It's all striving after wind. You get nothing for it. Think of how many people live their whole lives without Christ. They work and make all their money. They have their houses, their cars, and they die lonely and miserable, unsatisfied, unhappy. That need was never met. And then they pass into a Christless eternity. How vain is that? That's the world. The world's like a spiritual desert. Read on. All things are full of weariness. Think of it. Weariness. It just wears you down, doesn't it? A man cannot utter it. This Solomon says it's so wearying and frustrating and empty, you can't even talk about it correctly. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. You wouldn't want to, if you, I wouldn't want to trade place with Bill Gates or any of these guys. Don't envy these people. Ecclesiastes 6, 7. All the rest, all the toil of man is for his mouth and his appetite is not satisfied. And the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes is the whole world and everything it has to offer is emptiness, it's vanity, it's frustration, it's chasing after wind. And apart from God, it'll just leave you frustrated, broken, and empty. That's sad. To that crowd, Jesus is just crying out in the temple after this great picture of water, the waters of salvation. If anyone out there is thirsty, if you recognize your spiritual thirst, he says, you come to me. Let's talk some more about this. Jesus is claiming here to be the only answer to our deepest need. He says, come to me. In fact, notice it again there, 737. On the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. Note the next verse. He who believes in me. In other words, coming to Jesus is the same as believing in him. Believe in me. Believe what I'm telling you. Jesus had told him earlier in chapter 7, I've come here from God. I've come here with a message from God. That message is repent, believe the gospel, put your faith in me. He who comes to me by faith, he who believes in me, he says. Look at John 12. Jesus often spoke of this. John 12, verse 44. Look at John 12, verse 44. And again, notice, Jesus cried out. He's publicly shouting this to the crowds. Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I've come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my saying and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. And what is Jesus supposed to say and speak? Verse 50. I know his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak... I speak as the Father has said. He's crying out to this crowd again. It's like back in John 7. I've come here with a message from the Father, and that message is bringing eternal life. Come to me. Believe in me. That's Jesus' message. I love this. That's Jesus' cry of the gospel. Again, back in John 7. <clears throat> some verses. And we've seen some of these already. Isaiah 55. Here's, here's the Old Testament version of what Jesus just does here. God says, come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the water. There's that come. Come to me. Come on. You're all invited. Come. And he who has no money, come. Buy and enter. It's free. You don't need to pay for this. There's a banquet set before you. All God says is come and eat. You're starving. You're, you're, you're thirsty almost to the point of death. The table is set. Come and eat, it's free. Buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, your labor for that which is not, does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. That's what Jesus says. Hear me. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. He's talking here spiritually. Incline your ear and come to me. Here, notice, that your soul may live. And here it goes. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for who? David. When you see David mentioned in Isaiah, who's he talking about? Christ. 
Come to me, God says. You're starving. You're thirsty. You're parched. Come to me. The banquet is set. The sure love I promised through David, the Messiah who's coming. Listen to me. Hear me, he says. And I'll bring salvation to your souls. The love that I've promised through David, the Messiah. That's a neat invitation. That's powerful stuff. Matthew 11, Jesus said this before. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I, I would say without fear of being contradicted, you could stop anybody walking by our front door today who's lost. And they're carrying a burden, heavy burdens. This world is rough. This world kicks you in the teeth. This world, Satan is a cruel taskmaster. And they're all bearing these heavy burdens. They're all in bondages to things they can't get over. They all have hurts, disappointments, frustrations, problems they can't deal with. Jesus says, come to me. If you're carrying a heavy burden of anything, sin, problems, strife, family problems, money problems, drug problems, alcohol problems, come to me, he says. Notice he says there, I'll give you rest. How does he do that? Take my yoke. You know what a yoke is. A yoke is what you put on two oxen to steer them. Let me steer your life, he says. Listen to me. Hear me. Believe in me. Let me be the one who steers your life. And you'll find how, how blessed that can be. You'll find rest for your soul. Because unlike Satan, Jesus is not a cruel taskmaster. He loves his servants. He blesses those who follow him. And he says, come to me, bring your burdens to me, and I'll give you rest. What an incredible gospel invitation. John 6, 30-35, we saw this back in chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever thirsts in me shall never thirst. That's all in, contained in, in verse 37 of John 7, that word, if. If. Anyone is thirsty. If anyone recognizes their spiritual thirst, their spiritual hunger, Jesus says, come to me. Anyone who recognizes their brokenness, I'm, in, I'm burdened, I'm in bondage and I can't get out of it. I'm hooked on alcohol, I'm hooked on drugs, I'm hooked on whatever it is. I'm hooked on worry and fear and all the rest of this stuff. You know, the world right now, they call it fear porn. Everybody's afraid right now in the world. The media and everybody else keeps pumping out this fear. Be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. Everybody's going to die. COVID's going to take everybody out. World War III is about this. Everybody's afraid. Fear, fear, fear. Jesus says, come to me. I take those fears away. And he does. Through, this, through the truth of who he is. Anyone who's burdened with sin or the cares of this life, Jesus says, come to me. Notice he says there, come and drink. Again, those words, those verbs, come and drink, are in the continuous tense. Keep coming to me. Keep drinking of me. I am a fountain of, of living water, he says. Drink, 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 dive in. <clears throat> John 4, 14. Remember, here he's saying publicly, what about a year and a half before this, he said privately to the woman at the well. Remember the Samaritan woman came to draw water? It's on your sheet there. John 4, 14, he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Get that. Jesus says, I have a source of blessing. Picture it as water. That's not water. It's a blessing of being filled with the Spirit, having your sins forgiven, the joy and the peace that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. He says, I can give you this water, and it will so swell up in your soul, you'll never thirst again. But think about it. If you're a Christian, isn't that true? Since you've come to Christ, have you ever spiritually thirsted again? Have you? Have you ever thought, no, this, this, is, this Christ isn't all that great. I need something else. You ever thought that? Why not? Isn't your soul satisfied? Aren't you full? I know, that, I know all, a lot of you have burdens and problems. I get that. But in, in the spiritual reality of this, your soul is satisfied. This, this summer, I, I believe it's going to be in April, I'm going to be saved 50 years. Praise God for that. And I can tell you, in all these 50 years, I've never once thought I had to look somewhere else. You know, Jesus is all well and good, but I need something more than this. No, it's not, that's not that way. If you're a Christian, you know it's not that way. What he says is true. When you come to Christ and your sins are forgiven, you're filled with his spirit and you have the joy and the presence of the Lord, 
It's like, it's like being in a hot desert being, being filled with cool springs of living water. That's, that's the experience of it. Salvation here is described. We'll get to this next time. But notice how he describes it here. Again, back to, back to verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Innermost being means belly. He's describing there, if you come to me, not only am I going to give you cool, refreshing water of salvation, the water of God's spirit that will refresh your soul, that will revive your soul, that will comfort you, you're going to be so full of this, it's going to slop over out of you. It'll be more than you need. More than you can contain. In other words, I'm, on, I'm not only going to meet your needs, I'm going to drown you in it. In God's joy, in God's peace, in God's salvation. That's what the words mean. That's what the image here means. We'll get to more of that next week, Lord willing. But he said, right from inside of you. In other words, it's not, in other words the whole world is outside of you. you know, if I buy that new truck, how happy will I be? And you buy that new truck, and a month later, it's like, it's just a truck. If I get a new house, or if I get a new wife, or if I get new, more money, if I get a raise at work, how happy I will be. And all that outward stuff just comes and goes. It means nothing. What thrills you today is going to bore you next month. That's how it is. But Jesus says, this is within you. This never leaves you. This never goes sour. This never goes bad. That's what Jesus spoke about, the treasures in heaven, where the moths don't get to and destroy and doesn't rust. No thief can get it. The treasures God places in you. I'm with you whether you're in jail or whether you're in the palace. So in contrast, consider now what Jesus is promising in context. Consider what he's promising. All the blessings that we just saw in that big water ceremony, the Feast of Booth, all the promises of the future age when, when the Spirit will be poured out like water, when salvation from the, from, the wells, from the wells of salvation, people drink freely of God's blessing. All the blessings promised by God through the Spirit's outpouring in the latter days, as it says there, are to be found by believing in Christ. He's crying out to this crowd, all that you just saw, you get by believing in me. I am that cool water. I am the outpouring of the Spirit. I am the, 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 the water for one who's thirsting and starving in the desert. That's me, Jesus said. If you add that up, Christ is claiming, I am salvation. Salvation's found in me. I am that abundant, refreshing provision. I will refresh your souls. I am blessing. I am, you will never hunger or thirst again if you come to me, believe in me. Of course, he's speaking there spiritually. You will be fully satisfied. You'll be cleansed from sin. You have my spirit within you. You're ever deepening. That picture of Ezekiel's temple where the water gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. John says in Jesus Christ, through Moses, we got the law. Through Christ, we got what? Grace upon grace. And that's picturing like at the ocean when one wave comes in, another wave comes in. Grace upon grace upon grace. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. There's so much that God gives, you can't take it all in. That's what he's saying here. Now consider, again, how this image sounds to a desert dweller. These were, these were desert dwellers. These, these lived in the Middle East. They knew heat. You know, we take water for granted because every spigot you turn, it comes out without me thinking about it. To them, water was precious. This great water ceremony to remind them of God's gracious provision of, of spiritual water. And Jesus cries out to them, if you come to me, I'll give your soul such an abundant, never-ending supply of living water like a river. It'll flow out of you. Imagine how that sounds to someone living in the desert, someone living in, in Jerusalem, Palestine in those days. Now again, we've talked, what, what is this picture? What is all this water picturing? What does he mean? I remember, John is writing to a, a largely Greek audience. That's why he explains everything. For, for example, notice verse 30. John explains this. He says, but he spoke of the Spirit. Like you can imagine some Greek believer reading this and saying, what does it mean rivers are going to flow out of my belly? What does that mean? So John explains it. He's talking about the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit. What is all this picture? All this water and all this flowing of water and this overflowing and slopping over water. Of course, it's picturing salvation, isn't it? Finding salvation through faith in Jesus Christ is the greatest and most blessed experience a human being can ever have. 
Let me say that again. Finding salvation through faith in Jesus Christ is the most blessed and greatest experience you're ever going to have. Now think about that. Think of all the blessed things you've had in your life. Maybe your marriage or you got graduated school or whatever, retiring, whatever, all the good things that come into our lives. And there are a lot of good things God gives us, a lot of good things. If you're, if you're truly saved through the faith in Jesus Christ, filled by his spirit, you know. Your testimony is the greatest thing I've ever experienced is finding Jesus Christ. Of all the good things I've had in my life, none of them stack up to that one good thing God brought into my life. My relationship with Jesus Christ. Is that true? Every Christian for 2,000 years now, this has been the consistent testimony of the Christian church. Those who truly know Christ. There's no greater joy. There's no greater peace. There's no greater life that could be had than to be related to Jesus Christ through faith. They should see in us someone who's, who's far different than the world. The world around you is miserable. They're worried. They're worked up. They're, they're anxious. They're angry. They should see in the Christian a, a sense of joy, a sense of peace, a sense of satisfaction that they know nothing of. They may think you're weird. They may think you're stupid. But they'll see something in you that they, the world is, cannot give them. And that's pure satisfaction, pure joy in Christ. Now think. Think with me here. You who know Christ, you who know the joys of salvation, I just said it, with all the good things this world has to offer, even the good things you've already had in your life, whatever they may be, is there anything you can think of greater than, than knowing Jesus Christ? Of course not. In my, I've, I've been saved, again, by God's wonderful grace 50 years. I can tell you there's nothing in my life greater than this. I can't imagine anything greater than this. Would you trade knowing Jesus Christ for anything? No true Christian would. Why? Because he's the only source of satisfaction. He, he's fully satisfied our soul. Isn't this the greatest joy ever? And I would say to you, if you're sitting there thinking, what's he talking about? Either A, you're not saved, or B, you really need to think through what Christ has done for you. In spite of problems, in spite of health problems, and physical problems, and, and all kinds of other problems, and they're real, and they're painful, and they exist. Paul and Silas could be locked into a prison cell in a stinking, rat-filled, dirty dungeon and singing hymns at midnight because they know this. this, this that, that one thing that makes everything else different. John 1, 4, we're told, in him was life. You realize, again, those people walking past our church, walking, the zombies walking around Pottsville today who are lost, they're walking dead. Do you realize that? Your lost friends and family, they're walking dead. You have life. Jesus is life. And when you're in Christ, you now have life. You're alive. In fact, Jesus' favorite word for salvation was life. That they might have life and have it more abundantly. They might have life. I give them life. Romans 5.17, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, notice this phrase, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. If the Christian understands his position in Christ and the resources he has in Christ and the forgiveness he has in Christ, life will not overwhelm you. Paul says, if you, 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 don't, you have this abundance of grace and you have God's free gift of salvation, you reign in life. As the kids say today, you crush this. You can make it. You'll make it. Life is not going to take you out if you know Christ. If you really understand your salvation, you have all you need in Christ. You have, you have a, a, a permanent, permanent source of joy, of strength, of peace. Even if they arrest you and throw you in jail, you have many reasons in that jail cell to rejoice. Even if you come down with cancer, whatever else may come into your life, or sadness, or sickness, or whatever it is. Those things are real. I don't mean to minimize any of that. But on top of that, we have Christ. As Paul says, we reign in life. Romans 6, 4. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, you too might walk in, notice, newness of life. There's this Christian song I like. I think one of the lines is, brand new looks good on you. You're singing about to a friend who's got saved. Brand new looks good on you. You are new. Do you realize that? Newness of life. The new has come. First John, he tells us, who is it that overcomes the world? 
he who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We overcome the world. This world doesn't take us down like it takes everyone else down. 1 Peter 1.18 Peter says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish, that futile Ecclesiastes way of life we once lived. We're rescued from that in Christ. That's gone. Life for the Christian is no longer vanity, futility, vexation, frustration. It's a continual feast. It's a continual banquet. If, you, if, you, if your head's where it should be. 2 Peter 1.3. Precious verse. His divine power has granted to us, notice this, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. In other words, in, in, if you understand, there's that phrase here, the knowledge of him. If you understand what Christ has done for you, how safe you are, how loved you are, how precious you are. As Mike said, heaven that's coming, and all the many things we have in Christ. You now have everything you need for life and godliness. I believe life is horizontal. You, you have everything you need how to deal with this life, and everything you need how to deal with your walk with God. If you understand who you are in Christ, life and godliness. Do you believe that? I think a lot of Christians go around thinking, I just, I just can't make it. It's just not enough. I don't know what I'm going to do. You realize you have all you need to, get, to make it, to face whatever comes your way? Either out of these words are false and they're not false. 1 John 5.20 We know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we know Him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. God has come to us. We now know the truth. We see. Again, the world out there are walking in darkness. They believe nothing but lies. We know the truth. We're in him who is true. That's life changing. That's wonderful. That's something to be rejoicing about. Some Psalms, Psalms 18 too. Notice how many descriptions here of God. The Lord is my rock. And my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my strong. In other words, I can hide in God anytime I want. No one can get to me. He's the rock I stand on. He's the fortress I hide in. He's the God I walk by. He's my rock. He's the one that delivers me. He's the shield who protects me. Think of what those images are. This world will throw everything it has at you. Someone has said, the world doesn't care if a man goes to hell. They'll do nothing, but they'll try to stop with everything they have, anyone going to heaven. They'll throw everything they have against you. But the Lord is my rock, my deliverer, my shield, my fortress. What more could we need? Psalm 119, 165, a verse I love. Grace, great peace have those who love your law. Notice, nothing can make them stumble. There's a condition here. Those who love God's word, who live and walk by God's word, who believe God's word, as Jesus says, come to me, learn of me, listen to me. Let, me, let me be the yoke that runs your life. Nothing can make them stumble. That's quite a promise. Quite a promise. Psalm 62, 2. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. It is sad. And, I, and I've been there. I don't mean to... I'm guilty of this too every now and then. You see Christians all shook up. Worried. Worked up. Depressed. Sad. Stressed out. Why? Over what? Again, not minimizing anyone's problems. I know problems are real. This is telling you. But the Christian has a hiding place. A source of joy. A source of inner peace. And strength. And refreshment. And... and, and, and just the presence of Christ through his spirit, that's more than enough to face a firing squad. Whatever you have to face, that's true. It's very true. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That's an amazing statement. That's what Jesus is crying out here in John 7. Come to me, taste and see. It's good. Come to me, believe in me. As he said back in John 6, I'm the bread of life. Eat. Dig in. It's so good. And again, I would say, brothers and sisters, Chris, isn't that your testimony? That's why we're supposed to witness. We found, we were starving, but we found a free banquet that's the best food you've ever tasted. 
You need to tell your lost friends and family, come to this, come to this. It's free, come. Why would you starve? Why would you die? The most blessed life a person can ever know is to walk in Jesus Christ, to have he's forgiven, to have Jesus Christ as your, as your constant companion. There's nothing better than that. And we have that to offer to the nations. Come to Christ. Jesus here is shouting to these thousands of Jews who are leaving this festival, Come to me. Come to me. We should repeat that call. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. You you, you don't know what you're missing. Now I know that people say, well, you shouldn't tell people to get saved because of the benefits. Why not? The benefits are enormous. Yes, you should come to Christ because he's wonderful. He's glorious. He deserves it. But the benefits are enormous. The world is hurting. The world is dying. Almost everyone you know who is unsaved is miserable. Isn't that true? I don't know many unsaved people who are happy. I mean, really, truly, joyfully happy. Unless they're drunk or on drugs or something. That's not really real happiness. We know where, where the banquet is found. We know where the food is. Our job is to tell, come on, eat, come on. You're starving to death. You're, you're dying of thirst. I know, where the, I know where the water is. Jesus Christ. Let's close the prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, these are simple words, but Lord, how profound they are from the mouth of our Savior. Lord, we thank you for bringing us salvation. Lord, we were starving. We were dying of thirst. This world is empty. This world is harsh. This world is dry. And Lord, our souls without you were dry and parched and dead. But Lord, you came to us. You called us. You brought us in, Lord. You gave us the water of life. and You gave it to us freely. Oh, Lord, thank you that we didn't have to earn it. We didn't have to buy it because we couldn't. It was free without cost, just by believing, just by coming. And even that was your doing and working in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the joy. Lord, I thank you for the joy I've known of knowing Christ, Lord. And it's, none of that is about me. It's all about you, Lord. There is truly no greater life that I can imagine than to walk with Jesus Christ, to know the joy of sins forgiven, to know the presence and the filling of the Holy Spirit, to know the, the, the constant source of, of, of peace, and refreshment, Lord, and even in troubled times and hard times, Lord, to learn to, to trust in you and to hide in you as our hiding place and our rock and our shield. Oh, Lord, truly, you have blessed your people. Lord, help us to believe these things, to understand these things. Remind us again of how good it is to be in Christ and not to take for granted. Lord, forgive us for allowing this world to crowd these thoughts out of our mind, to allow this world and our circumstances, hard as they may be, Lord, to rob our joy, to rob our peace. Lord, the world needs to see in us something supernatural, something amazing. And Lord, this is it. This, they should see in every Christian a, an attractive joy, an attractive peace, and wonder how they too can have that. So Lord, please help us to take this to heart, to live and enjoy the great salvation we have and to, to be a testimony to the world. But again, thank you for Christ, our Savior, our fountain of living water. Lord, we long for the day and we can see him and as Mike has pointed out, Lord, as great as it is here, it's, even, it's even going to get greater. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' precious name we ask it all. Amen.